As you're sitting down, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 109 this morning. Psalm 109 is one of the most difficult and challenging psalms in the entire Bible. And I want to explain why right off the bat here so you understand the nature of what we're dealing with. In the Psalter, there are seven psalms that are what we call imprecatory psalms. The word imprecatory means cursing psalms. And Psalm 109 is the second to last of these seven. These psalms have troubled believers, well, for pretty much forever. Because they are harsh in their tone, and they call for divine judgment. This psalm is no exception to that. Many of the more liturgical denominations, when they follow what they call it, they have a three-year liturgical calendar, a Bible reading schedule they follow in all their services. Many of those denominations skip Psalm 109. Just don't include it in their liturgical reading schedule. And we might be tempted to skip it as well. But we won't do that. Now one thing that you notice right away when you begin to study Psalm 109 is verse 8. And I'm just going to go there because I want to show you right off the bat. This is one of the reasons why this is especially challenging. Verse 8, and it says this, Let his days be few and let another take his office. That may have a ring of familiarity to your ear. I don't know. But it's used by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 1 and verse 20. Referring to Judas and the need to replace Judas among the 12 uh, apostles. Many Christians have used that connection as kind of a key to interpret this psalm as referring to Jesus Christ and his betrayal by Judas. With that kind of framework in mind, a lot of... um, a lot of Christians in the early centuries of the church interpreted it this way. And over time, Judas began to be seen as a representative of all of the Jews who sought to crucify Jesus and who rejected him. And so Psalm 109 began to be used kind of generically as a curse against the Jews. In fact, one author that I read this week indicated that Psalm 109 has been cited many times throughout church history to justify pogroms, which are massacres against the Jewish people. And so Psalm 109 kind of became a rallying cry for anti-Semitism throughout church history. The same author said that in the Middle Ages, Psalm 109 became a kind of curse of death that you could use against your enemy. It was believed, even up to the 18th century in Switzerland and parts of Germany, it was believed that if you recited it every day, at morning and evening, for a year and nine days, that your enemy would die. If you missed one of those times, though, then the curse would come back on you. So you better be really careful before you invoke Psalm 109 for that purpose. Now, John Calvin, who some of you may be familiar with, 
wrote about this psalm. He wrote a commentary on the psalms, and he wrote about this psalm in the 16th century. And this is what he said. It's just a startling statement, but listen to this. I'm going to read it to you in its entirety. He says, how detestable a piece of sacrilege is it on the part of the monks, and especially the Franciscan friars, to pervert this psalm by employing it to countenance the most nefarious purposes. If a man harbor malice against a neighbor, it is quite a common thing for him to engage one of these wicked wretches to curse him, which he would do by daily repeating this psalm. I know a lady in France who hired a parcel of these friars to curse her own and only son in these words. Now, with that kind of history behind it, maybe it'd be safer just to avoid Psalm 109 altogether. Now, you can probably guess what I'm going to say to that. Just because this psalm has been misunderstood before doesn't mean it can't be and shouldn't be understood rightly now. And just because this psalm has been misapplied before doesn't mean that we can't apply it properly today. And just because it's been misused before doesn't mean we can't use it to our benefit today. And I think as we read this psalm, there are a number of important principles that are taught here. Principles that you and I need to learn and we need to believe and we need to put into practice in our lives as Christians. And we don't do that by softening the difficulties of this psalm, which you will see as we go through it, trust me. We do it by handling those things properly. And that's my goal this morning. So let's pray because I realize that this is fraught with difficulty and I want to ask the Lord's help. Father, I thank you for your word. Even for a passage of Scripture like Psalm 109, which many people have uh, misunderstood and misapplied and misused, and we realize that as a danger. Help us not to fall into that trap. Help us not to use this or to, to read it and think that this psalm is somehow too ghastly for us to, uh, for us to embrace as a part of the Scriptures. Help us to realize that since... Paul told Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed and is therefore profitable. That this Scripture is from you and therefore it is profitable. Help us to understand that going into it and then give us wisdom. Give us insight to know your truth so that we can see and understand exactly what's here and how this speaks, the timeless principles that that it teaches. I pray that you'd help me as I speak, Lord, not to in any way be in the way, but help me simply to be able to show and explain the truth that's here and be able to highlight it and illustrate it and then bring it uh, to our attention that we might apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would glorify yourself by your word and the power of your Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want you to see is we're going to just jump right into the psalm. I want you to see the psalmist's reaction to his enemies because there are enemies at play in this psalm. The psalmist, by the way, is David. The title of the psalm tells us that. Which means it finds itself kind of an interesting situation being placed in this fifth book of the Psalter, which I've said is probably something that was compiled after the exile. But this is another psalm of David that's used here. But David certainly understood what it was like to face enemies. And this is the psalm that deals with that. So right away, look at what he says here in verses 1 through 5. The first stanza. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. 
They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. It's it's demonstrated very clearly in these first few verses. David begins to cry out to the God of his praise, he calls. In fact, that's the opening words in Hebrew. Our English has switched them around for, I think, for stylistic purposes. But, but in Hebrew, it begins, O oh God of my praise, don't keep silent. He begins with that address of the Lord. By the way, that, that expression shows that there's a prior relationship. He's communicating that I have praised you in the past. And he's also expressing his hope and his confidence and his expectation that he will continue to praise the Lord. So even this this psalm, which is, a again, an imprecatory psalm, a psalm of, of curse on his enemies, is still a psalm of praise because he is praising the Lord in the very beginning of the psalm. And the end of the psalm, he's going to conclude with praise as well. But it's not just a demonstration because notice what he said there in verse 4. We read, we read that. In verse 4, he says his enemies responded to his gestures of love. They responded with accusations. But he gives himself to prayer. Do you notice that? i just let you in here. You notice in that verse, the words give myself to are in italics. The reason that they are is that they've been added by the translators to make it smoother. But they're not actually, the, the actual wording of it in the original language, the original Hebrew, literally is, but I, prayer. There's no verb. It's just, but I, prayer. And what he's doing in that is, is he is emphasizing and identifying himself with prayer. Alec Motier, in his, uh, in his devotional uh, translation of this, he says that the intent of the grammar here is to assert one thing as the exact equivalent of another. In other words, Alec says, David's entire reaction to his opponents was prayer. What he's basically saying is, in view of what my opponents have done to me, the way they have responded, I've loved them and they have responded with hatred, with accusations. And in in that situation, that scenario, he says, I I prayer. I don't have anything else. My my response is prayer and prayer alone. We've seen this in the other imprecatory psalms. We've already studied five of them. And we've seen this in these other psalms, that, that the psalmist, when he faces enemies, opponents who are hostile to him, he prays. He only prays. What does that mean? It means he doesn't take matters into his own hands. He never seeks to get justice for himself. He never seeks revenge for himself. He prays to the Lord. And so, right off the bat, we have one lesson that we should learn from the imprecatory Psalms, and specifically from Psalm 109, and that is that we should pray for our enemies. You should pray for your enemies. And you say, well, pastor, you don't know my enemies. Well, if you look again at how David's enemies were treating him, just in these opening verses, I think it's pretty likely that his situation is worse than yours, whatever your situation may be and whoever may be hostile toward you. 
His enemies spoke wicked lies against him, according to verse 2. And they surrounded him with hatred and and words of hatred in verse 3. They were actively opposing him and fighting against him, even though he'd never done anything to hurt them. When he showed them love in verse 4, they responded with more accusations. And the word accusers, by the way, in verse 4 is, is interesting. It's, it's a form of the word Satan. Okay. That might give you a little bit of an idea of what kind of accusations and slanderous things they were saying about him. Okay. I don't, some people have thought that verse 4 was actually referring to Satan. I don't think so. I think it's simply the, the, Satan's name. Satan means accuser. And that's what they are. They are his accusers. But in that way, they are acting just like the accuser. They are slandering him. They are making false accusations against him. And then in verse 5, he reiterates again, they have returned evil for good. He's done them good and they have returned evil. And then he's loved them and they have hated him in response. Now, I'm not saying this to minimize. However, you may have been mistreated by someone else. But it really should give us pause before we start thinking, well, my situation is unique. The people who've hurt me are worse. Or I, you don't understand the situation I am in. I can't respond this way because my situation is unique. Well, David's enemies were lying about him, slandering him, accusing him, hating him, and returning evil for every bit of good he ever did for them. And as we'll see, they were seeking his life. In the face of hate-filled, slanderous accusers who opposed him at every turn and rejected his kindnesses, David's response was to pray for his enemies. Now, this is one of those where it's kind of like I'm setting you up for something here. Because I say we should pray for our enemies. David prayed for his enemies. But here's the question that we need to think about. What did David pray for his enemies? That's the key here. What was the actual content of his prayer? Look at verse 6, down to verse 20. Here's what David prays for his accusers. Set a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. And let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let their creditors seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him nor let, any, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off. And in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as with a garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like the garment which covers him and for a belt with which he girds himself continually. 
Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak against evil against my person. I, didn't think, I don't think you expected that to be the content of the prayer. Pray for your enemies, right? This is where the psalm gets controversial. The major question that everyone wants to ask when they read this psalm is, can we pray that way as Christians? And some of you already are grimacing, thinking, I don't know. Can we pray, let the wicked man have a wicked man put an authority over him so that he can experience it for himself? Let him have an accuser to stand at his right hand. By the way, that verse there in in verse 6, that's an image taken from the courtroom. We see it, by the way, used very powerfully in Zechariah chapter 3. There's a vision that Zechariah has of the courtroom of heaven and where he sees something very similar to this. But, but the image of a courtroom here, the accuser would stand beside the accused and make his complaint to the judge. That's the picture here. Let him have an accuser to stand beside him, accusing him, and then let him be found guilty, he says. Let his prayers be sinful. That's something to pray for another person, isn't it? It reminds me of Proverbs 28, verse 9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Let his life be cut short. Let his reputation be dishonored as his office is taken away and given to someone else. Then things turn really dark. Let his children suffer as orphans and his wife as a widow, begging bread and living in destitute circumstances, losing everything to their creditors and having no one to show mercy on them. Then he even goes in verse 14 and says, okay, let's make this retroactive. Let his name be so despised, his father's sin and his mother's sins be remembered so that his name is despised, his entire family line be cursed. Since he did not remember the mercy toward the poor and needy, but he took advantage of them, let his own sins and the sins of his family be constantly remembered by God in judgment. That's the prayer. Since he loved cursing, let curses cling to him. Since he refused to bless others, let blessing always be beyond his reach. Since he wore curses like clothes, let those curses cling to him and within, uh, and within him as, a, as if it was a belt that he puts on and can never take off. And he sums up the prayer over there in verse 20. Let this be Yahweh's reward to my accusers and those who speak evil against my person. Pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies indeed. Is that what you think Jesus meant? Luke chapter 6, he said, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you? Hmm. Do you think that's what Paul had in mind? Romans chapter 12, when he said, Repay no one evil for evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What about Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, when he said, uh, Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. When we think about praying for our enemies, we usually think about praying for their good, not praying for their judgment. But here's the interesting thing. As I looked at those passages this week, Specifically, as I looked at the context of those passages this week, if you read in the context of Luke 6, the verses right before where Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for them, 
The verses right before that, Jesus spoke four woes or curses on men who trust in money and possessions and people rather than trusting in God. Loving and praying for your enemies seems to not be contradictory. In fact, it seems to include the recognition of divine judgment on unbelief. Romans chapter 12, when Paul speaks of overcoming evil with good, in that same context, that same paragraph, he says, quotes from Proverbs 25, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Okay, if, you're, if he's thirsty, give him drink. Okay, and then what does he say? Quoting from, from Proverbs 25, he says, for in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now, I, I looked at a number of different commentaries on that this week, and, and it's interesting. There's a, a lot of commentaries like to say that that's saying that if you do good to your enemy, you will heap coals of shame on him and he'll be so ashamed of himself that he will, he'll repent. Well, one, I don't think that happens very much. So as far as a general proverb, I don't think that works. But two, I don't think that's what it's saying at all. In fact, Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the image of fiery coals being put on someone's head is not shame and making them feel bad about what they've done. It's judgment from heaven coming down on them. And so I think what Paul is saying, what Solomon was saying, is do good to your enemy. Why? Because you know that God will utterly destroy him in the day of judgment. Doing good to your enemy is not contrary to recognizing and understanding judgment. In fact, it's, it's doing it in light of the coming judgment where God is going to pour fiery hot coals on his head. Peter, again, 1 Peter chapter 3, in the same place where he says, Bless those who do evil, he says this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, in every one of those contexts where we have a, a, a teaching to love your enemies and pray for them and do good to them and return good instead of evil, in every one of those contexts, we are reminded of the judgment of God on unbelievers and the judgment of God on re, uh, rebel sinners. Praying for your enemies... And praying for those who have turned against the Lord includes praying for righteous judgment to be done. This is a kind of prayer that we as Christians don't often engage in, and maybe we should more. I'm not saying we should revel in these things. This should become the dominant aspect of our prayer life. But you know, there are, there are things that happen in this world. And there are times where we see that judgment is not going to take place in this world. What do we do in those instances? What should we do? I would submit to you, we should pray that God would judge. That's right for us to do, not wrong. In fact, you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught his disciples to pray in this manner. One of the things that he said for them to pray was, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What do you think you're praying for when you pray that? When you pray, Lord Jesus, won't you come? 
oh, we, we're so ready for you to come and return. If you're, if you're coming on Wednesday nights, we're studying through the book of Revelation. We're studying through some of what's going to happen when that happens. You realize when you're praying for the return of Christ, you're praying for those things to happen. You're praying for the judgment to come. Because when He comes, judgment comes with Him. That's the right kind of prayer. And I would submit to you, in fact, this kind of prayer is necessary for us at times. Because we need to remember that vengeance belongs to God. And He's going to make everything right. And if we are unwilling to pray for Him to do so, if we're unwilling to pray for His judgment to take place, we're far more likely to try to take matters into our own hands. Because we're not being reminded, we're not reminding ourselves that God is the judge. That ultimately, injustice can take place on this, on this earth now, but that injustice will not stand ultimately. And I need to remind myself of that so that I don't get, uh, get all bent out of shape about injustice that I think I should take into my own hands. There are things I must just trust the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something else these curses reveal. And it's this, that sin brings terrible suffering to ourselves and to others. There's a reality here that we need to grasp from these curses. It's kind of the point of what verses 16 through 19 say here. David's enemy forgot to show mercy or refused to show mercy. And therefore, but he uses the language of did not remember. And I like that. He did not remember to show mercy. So God, remember his sins. It's kind of, you know, let the punishment fit the crime. You've heard that expression before. That's what David is saying here. He didn't remember to show mercy. So you don't forget all of his sins. He loved cursing, so you make him subject to a curse. He refused to bless, so withhold blessing from him. David is praying for the appropriate judgment to come, the the, the punishment that will fit the crime that has been done. That's what David is asking for. He's asking for justice to be done. And guess what? This This is what we ought to expect with sin. If you look at what what may be the most offensive portion of the psalm to many people, it's verses ten or verses nine through thirteen, where he speaks about the the curses coming here on on his, the the wife and the children of his enemy. Right, that his children become orphans, that the wife would become a widow, that they would become destitute, that they would suffer poverty. But think about this for a second. This man who has chosen a life of evil and wicked rebellion against God and against the authorities of God. When that man is found guilty and he's condemned, there's a devastating effect on his family, isn't there? The question we really need to stop and think about is whose fault is that? Isn't it the fault of the man who chose this path? The man who rebelled, the man who refused to acknowledge God, the man who sinned and did wrong, he brought the judgment on himself and on his family. 
So when David is praying here these, these things about the children and the wife, he's, he's simply praying that the natural consequences of sin and the judgment for sin would come. And yes, that will include the man's family. Why? Because our sin affects those around us. It, it sucks them in. And the consequences for our sinful choices have an effect on them. And that's what David is praying about here. That's what he's praying for. That God's judgment would come. And he recognizes when God's judgment comes, it is not just going to be on the man who sinned, but also on those who are depending on him. There's a reason that as we think about this psalm, and as I've thought about this psalm this week, it, it, it ought to force us to stop and think about the consequences of sin. Sin has terribly devastating effects. David is recognizing that here. Even as he's praying for judgment to come, he's recognizing that judgment is going to bring devastating effects on this man, but also on his family. One writer put it this way concerning this whole section. He said, sin brings us under the domination of the wicked one, as described in verse 6. It ruins everything about us, verse 7. It extends its infection to those linked with us, verses 9 and 10. It pauperizes, that is, it it, it leaves us poor, verse 11. It leaves us friendless, verse 12. And why does it do that? Because it brings on us the fruits of our own choices, actions, and attitudes. That's verses 16 to 20. When you choose to sin, you are choosing the consequences that go with it. You are choosing the the judgment that comes with it and all of its effects. Thankfully, in my life I've seen this many times, and you have as well. God is merciful, and we don't always experience those effects to the full. But what David is praying for here is that when judgment comes from God, those effects will be felt. And he's simply including all of those effects as as the natural result of sin. This is what sin does. This is how sin works. We need to understand that. We have have softened our view of sin to the point where, uh, you know, it's it's just not that big of a deal. We don't think about this stuff. But David is really forcing us here to come face to face with the fact that when you choose to sin, you bring on yourself all of the weight of judgment. Not to mention the corruption of sin itself, but, but this is speaking really with a focus of judgment here. However else we might think of David's prayer against the wicked, we need to recognize that he is not asking for anything unusual in judgment. What he's asking for is God to do what God's word leads us to expect concerning sin. We don't have time to go back and trace these things back, but I think every single one of these points in his prayer finds expression in the law of God. That God leads us to expect this. If you choose to sin, expect this to happen. Expect your life to be shortened. Expect your children to suffer. Expect your wife to suffer. If you choose to sin, you need to expect these kind of consequences. Expect your name to be dishonored and you to be shamed. That should be the natural consequence. And if it doesn't happen naturally, it will happen when God judges. All of these things are things that God has taught in His Word and has promised in His Word that He's going to do. How could it be wrong then for us to pray for God to do what He's promised He's going to do? I don't think it is. I don't think it's wrong for us to pray this way. 
to pray that God would do what he's promised he'll do with respect to sin. But at the same time, this ought to make us think very carefully. It ought to give us a great deal of caution before we indulge in sin in our own life. Especially when we're tempted to believe, as, as we're often told, that our sin is ours alone and it doesn't hurt anybody else. It doesn't affect anybody else. It's just ours and we can indulge in it and there's no consequences. The effects of sin and of the judgment of sin are painful to us and painful to those around us. And we would do well to meditate on them here in the psalm. So there's some some things we can learn from these curses that I think are important. David does more, though, than just pray for judgment. Notice in verse 21 and following, he prays for God's mercy. There's a, a... a contrast all of a sudden, verse 21, but you, O God the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake. Because your mercy is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord, my God. O save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. Now, we might miss the significance of verse 21 a little bit because of the translation, O God, the Lord. But that, uh, if you notice that, God is all capital letters. That's a signal to you in English. Unfortunately, you have to decode the signal here. What it really reads is, O Yahweh, the Lord. It's using the name of God. And why is that important? Because the next thing he says is, deal with me for your name's sake. He's invoking the name of God here. (coughs) His name, Yahweh. What does it mean to deal with the psalmist for his name's sake? Well, it means that that he's to maintain the honor of his name. How is God going to maintain his own honor? How is he going to maintain his own reputation, the honor of his name? Well, he's going to keep his promises. Invoking the name of Yahweh reminds us that he is the the, the God who makes covenant with his people. So David here is appealing to him on the basis of his name, Yahweh. You who are are the covenant-keeping God. And he affirms this when he says in the second part of that verse, because your mercy is good. Deliver me. There's that word again, mercy. We've run across that in the last couple of Psalms. We were many times throughout the Psalms. That word has said. Mercy, loving kindness, faithful love, loyal love, however you want to translate that word. 
This is the, 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 that faithfulness, that loyalty, that love that, that Yahweh has toward his people to keep his covenant. And David says, because you are Yahweh, because of your name, because you are mercy, you're, you are faithfully loving your people. Keep your covenant. Do everything you've promised to do and save me. What David does here in these verses is something his enemies will not do. He humbles himself and he cries out for mercy from Yahweh, who is Lord. He speaks here of his weakness, of his frailty. And in, in, in the imagery that he uses is all, uh, all suggests here that he is all dried up. He's, he's, he's light as nothing. He's, he's wasting away. But he explains why. Because in verse 24, he connects us to fasting. In other words, he has committed himself to prayer. That's what fasting is about. He's so committed to prayer that he has not eaten. And because of that, he's weak. But this, of course, ties us all the way back to verse 4 where he said that he gave himself to prayer in response to his enemies. Remember, he's not taking matters into his own hands. He is committing himself to prayer. In fact, he is clinging to the Lord so desperately in prayer that he's failing to eat and he's growing weak and his enemies, his opponents are looking at him and they are mocking him even as he prays. They shake their heads at him. He's a reproach, verse 25. It's as if they're saying to him, you're wasting your time. It's no use praying. (laughs) And yet David's response there, the very next verse, verse 26, he renews his, 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 his prayer. Help me, O Yahweh my God, he says. He invokes the name again, but he, he cries out for help again. He's, he's just, this is all he has. That's why this is so important. He's praying and he's depending on the Lord here. He's not taking matters into his own hands. He's not going out trying to set things right. He's simply crying out to the Lord. And when his enemies mock him for it, he cries out even more. And this psalm in so many ways really highlights the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. You see, the believer admits that he is poor and needy. If you're a Christian today, then your attitude, when you think about yourself and your own spiritual uh, uh, self before God, your attitude ought to be, I am poor and needy. Lord, I am so weak. That's what David is praying here. The believer comes to God humbly and asks for mercy. The believer confesses that Yahweh is his Lord. That's what he says there in in verse 21. You, O Yahweh, the Lord, the Master. And then verse 26. O Yahweh, my God. So his confession is, Yahweh, you are my God and my Master. He is completely submitting himself to the Lord. Trusting in his loving kindness, his mercy. That's all he has. You have the psalmist here and what he's doing is he's simply saying, God, I have no other hope but your mercy. 
In contrast, we have the unbeliever who thinks he's strong. He scoffs at those who pray and those who trust in God. He lies and he deceives. He believes that he is his own master. But in the end, the judgment of God reveals which one of those is right and which is wrong. Psalm 109 teaches us that men may curse us, but God's blessing is more powerful. Men may exalt themselves, but God's judgment will put them to shame. In short, you could put it this way, God's mercy gives hope and joy to those who trust in him. This is really how David concludes the psalm. He speaks of this great reversal that's going to take place on the day of judgment. Putting down his enemies and lifting up uh, the servants of the Lord. Those who trust in him. But then he closes in the last two, two verses with words of praise. Verse 30 and 31. I will greatly praise Yahweh, the Lord, with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. I love this image that he uses in the very last verse. I want to just meditate on this for a minute. Compare that with the image in verse 6. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. We're reminded of the contrasting destinies of the saved and the lost here. The wicked man, the one who's unrepentant in his sin. The one who refuses to humble himself before God and confess his sin. One day he's going to stand before the Lord in judgment. That's you. If you have not trusted in the Lord, if you have not repented of your sins and confessed your sin to God, you are going to stand in judgment before him one day. You will stand in judgment before him and you will have an accuser at your side, at your right hand, who will list the charges against you. And the Lord, who is a righteous judge, will declare you guilty and condemned and cast you into hell. This is the destiny of all those who trust in themselves and refuse to trust in the Lord. But as I said, there's a contrast. What's the destiny of the saved, the believing? Well, they're the poor and needy. They cry out to the God for mercy and for salvation. They confess Yahweh as their master and their Lord. And notice, instead of an accuser standing at the right hand of judgment, who's standing there in that last verse? It's an advocate. They don't have an accuser there. They have an advocate standing beside them at their right hand. Here at the end of Psalm 109, this imprecatory psalm that many people find offensive and distasteful so much that they would rather skip it or even remove it from Scripture saying it's unworthy of God. Here at the end of this psalm, we find assurance for the man or the woman who trusts in the Lord. And the assurance is this, that that Yahweh himself will stand at your right hand and defend you from all accusations. Think about it. He, Yahweh, shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. The man who trusts in the Lord will have a divine 
defender. David speaks of this in other places. Psalm 16 is one. Psalm 16, he says, Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Speaking of the Lord. Job. Job speaks of having a witness in heaven and an advocate in the heights in Job 16. In the New Testament, the Apostle John declares, in perfect harmony here with Psalm 109, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. Instead of an accuser, we have an advocate. The Apostle Paul encourages those who are believers. In Romans 8, he says this, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The promise at the end of the psalm is the promise for the believer of an advocate rather than an accuser. Have you humbly confessed your sin like the psalmist? Your need of God. Have you cried out to Him for mercy? Have you recognized that He is your rightful Lord and Master? If so, then Jesus Christ is your advocate. He is the one who will defend you from any and every charge. Trust Him today and rejoice in His mercy. But on the other hand, if you've not yet come to Him, if you've not yet trusted in the Lord, and you've not humbled yourself, you've not confessed your sin and your need of His grace, then you are still accused and you stand condemned before the Lord. And I appeal to you today, humbly admit that you have sinned and rebelled against God who is your rightful Lord and Master. Turn from yourself and trust in Him. That He might be at your right hand in our seating for you. Today is the day for you to trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand these truths. Thank you for giving us this psalm that challenges us. Lord, it challenges us to think about the reality of sin. Sin is devastating. Sin has horrible consequences, not just itself, but then the judgment for sin. And you have promised there will be a judgment for sin. We can trust that. We can know that that, that all sin will be judged. It will either be judged in the person of Christ or it will be judged and that condemnation laid on each unbeliever who refuses Christ. But it will be judged. Lord, I pray that today you would help us to see the danger of sin, the foolishness of, of engaging in sin, the consequences of it. But help us also to trust in your judgment, to rest in the knowledge that you will do what is right and what is just. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to examine our own hearts, to see whether we are like the psalmist, crying out for mercy and humbling ourselves before you. 
or if we are still self-centered and self-focused, relying on our own selves and thinking that we're good enough or we're okay or somehow that we can escape judgment. I pray you wouldn't allow us to believe that lie, that you would convince our hearts of the truth and cause us to repent and trust in Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have of an advocate at our right hand to defend us and protect us from every accusation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.